Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'd like to say thank you for those who have been praying for my family. We thought we were going to lose my father this morning. He's in the hospital. He's stable now. Uh, we're making preparations for hospice to bring him home, hopefully tomorrow. So you can pray for that. Pray for his body and pray for his soul. Pray for my mother to have strength. Um, and it's not lost on me that the Lord would have me front row for this on the day that I'm preaching on marriage and what it looks like to care for a spouse, um, even an unbelieving spouse. So tonight we'll be looking at what Paul would have us to see regarding marriage and divorce. And marriage, as we all know, is hard in this fallen world. Even the best marriages end in heartache because one of the spouses is going to die before the other. One statistic I saw this week about how hard marriage is is that divorce rate in the United States is about 45% right now. It means nearly half of all marriages end in divorce. And some people looking only at the hard data are encouraged by that number because it's actually clicking downward. Um, but I think that declining number of divorces actually masks a greater problem. And that's that marriages, marriage rates are dropping as a whole because fornication has become an acceptable norm. There are fewer divorces because there are fewer marriages. People don't feel the need to get married anymore. But this isn't a new problem. Sexual sin and skewed views of marriage were just as a problem in Paul's day. That's what he's addressing here in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul, Paul is writing to instruct and to correct the Corinthian congregation. Writing to a congregation that had both Jews and Gentiles. Both groups came into the church often with sub-biblical understandings of marriage and sexuality and, and singleness. The Jews in the congregation with Orthodox Jewish belief would have been raised with the idea that you had to be married. If you weren't married, you are outside of God's will and thus ought to be excluded from the kingdom of heaven. On the other hand, many people in Corinth had a growing fascination with celibacy. They were concerned with remaining single. They believed that singleness was inherently more virtuous spiritually. In other words, if you were single, you were able to give God a higher amount of devotion. You were able to live on a higher plane of spiritual life than if you were married. There were some that would go so far as to say that physical intimacy of any kind was, if nothing else, a misdirection of effort that could have been better channeled into acts of devotion to God rather than attachment to this spouse. Some were saying that the truly devoted Christian would never marry at all. And again, this, this understanding carried so far as to say that the truly devoted Christians were the ones that would even divorce their spouse. In order that they might better serve the Lord, we need to go our separate ways. Or if they did want to stay together, we will just withdraw within our marriage all physical intimacy and affection. We'll live as if we were celibate singles who happen to share the same house. No more sexual relations in marriage. We're devoting ourselves to God and God alone, and we're not going to get dragged down with this earthly, spiritual, fleshly stuff. 
And so all sorts of problems and confusion are ruling the marital scene in this church in Corinth. And so they wrote to Paul asking for answers. And these questions that they were seeking answers for were basically these. Is marriage a command? Is marriage a law? Do I have to be married to please God? Should single people then seek out marriage, or, should, or is it more spiritual to stay single? Can you be and are you a more devoted Christian if you're not married? Another question came out of all these discussions. Should married people who then become Christians abstain from all sexual interaction within their marriage? Should a Christian... Married to a non-Christian, divorce that non-Christian in order to not have a mixed marriage and therefore unite Christ with a pagan. These were the questions, and the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians helps us clearly answer them. Now, several weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 through 7, and we saw the general principles regarding marriage. And what Paul said, by way of a very brief summary, is this. He said that marriage is normal. Marriage, in fact, is for the majority. God made most of us to marry. Marriage is good, but marriage is not an absolute command for everyone. And we know this because God has, verse 7, given some people the charisma or the gift of being single. The ability by the Holy Spirit to control their sexual desire. And if that's what God has gifted you with, then your singleness is a unique gift from God and ought to be used for His glory. So marriage is the norm, excuse me, marriage is the norm, but it's not commended. It's not an absolute. It's not law. But it is the norm, and it helps avoid fornication, sexual, sinf- sinful sexual involvement. Normally, you get married, but for some who have the gift of being sim- single, that's a special blessing of God, and it ought to be maintained because it puts you in a position to be used by God in a very unique way. So these are the general principles. Marriage is normal. Singleness is the exception. Both are gifts from God. Whichever gift you have, you ought to maintain and cherish as a special gift from God. Now on to our text for tonight, verses 8 through 16. We'll see Paul take these general principles from the preceding verses and apply them to four different groups of people. But before we get into that, let's read 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 8. The word of our Lord to us says, To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord... That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. 
But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your spirit to open our eyes to see the truth of this text. We pray that you would use it to build up your people, that you would make us more holy, that you would make us as we ought to be, as Christ is. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins this section by addressing the first of four groups, and that first group is the unmarried. The unmarried. This group would have included those who have never been married, those who were divorcees, and those that were widowed. And to this group, Paul says that it is good for them to remain single, just like he is. So if you're single, that's, that's good. If you're widowed, that's, that's fine. If you've never been married or if you're divorced, so be it. You can stay that way. Don't listen to the perhaps Jewish contingent of the congregation that's telling you that to be single is sin is outside of God's will. That is wrong, Paul would say. Marriage is a good gift, but so too is singleness. And our interpretation of this passage ought to be uh, about the unmarried ought to be controlled by what Paul says later in the chapter, verses 32 through 35, where Paul says that singleness is not only a status is not, excuse me, a status necessarily outside of God's will but that the the unmarried person has certain benefits that a married person does not. A married person, Paul says, is concerned with pleasing a spouse, but a single person is not encumbered by such concerns, and they're thus able to secure undivided devotion to the Lord. I'll talk more about singleness when we get to the next verses, but for now, the principle for us to see here in Paul's application is that singleness is not a defect. It's not a curse. It's a gift from the Lord, just like marriage is. And as it is a gift, it's not a problem that needs fixing. However, Paul is not ignorant of our physical makeup, nor is he ignorant of different temperaments among different people. And thus he gives further instruction to the unmarried in verse 9 that helps those who need it. He admits that there are some unmarried people who struggle with self-control. He says even burn with passion. And those people ought to get married, Paul says. Singleness is not necessarily a permanent assignment. And one of the ways that God shows you that you ought to pursue marriage is that you are unable to control your passions. This this burning doesn't merely mean an occasional longing for a companion. Or is it even the standard battle with lust that every person might have in their Christian life. Rather, I think we ought to think about this language of burning with passion to mean an all-encompassing, thought-controlling type of experience. If you're single and you find your thoughts and your battles for holiness centered around the sins that could be helped by having a partner, then this is likely the Lord telling you to pray for and pursue a spouse. But if you're able to find contentment in the Lord while single, then praise God for that gift and seek to use that gift for what it is, a a divine enablement 
to minister in ways that a married person couldn't as easily do. Marriage is good. Singleness is good. Neither is deficient. Neither is more inherently holy. Both should be used to serve God. Moving on to the second group that Paul addresses, let's look at verse 10 and see what he says to the married Christians. The married Christians. Verse 10 says, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now Paul gives these words and he prefaces them with something that sounds alarming at first glance. He says, not I, but the Lord. And Later in the passage he says, not the Lord, but I. And these words indicate not that Jesus' words are in any way in opposition to what Paul is saying. Rather, it means regarding the situation here in verses 10 and 11, Jesus has already given instruction during his earthly ministry. For example, Jesus speaks about marriage and divorce in Mark chapter 10, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19. And in all three of those passages, the overwhelming thrust is clear. Stay married. Don't divorce. Don't leave. And that's what Paul is encouraging here of believers. But in Corinth, something different is going on. As we mentioned in a previous sermon, believers in Corinth were arguing that celibacy was really the way to go. If you're going to be really holy, you need to be celibate. If you really love Jesus, then you wouldn't distract yourself with these earthly things like marriage and physical intimacy. If you really want to be holy, you'll separate from your spouse. Maybe even divorce them. And that was the lie that Satan had planted in the congregation, and that had taken root. But what that lie does is it ignores specific revelation from God regarding his thoughts, his disposition towards divorce. Scripture is clear that God hates divorce. He hates it. God says in Malachi 2, I hate putting away. I hate divorce. He condemned the Israelites for it. He said, you have, done, you have done treacherously against the wife of your youth. You're divorcing one another. And yet here in Corinth, it is evident that some had already done just that. They had disregarded God's design for marriage. It's designed to be a lifelong commitment, and yet they had separated and look again at verse 11. But if she does separate, and the language here assumes that somebody in Corinth had already done it, you know, it's too late. It's already happened. What are the consequences? Paul says, let her remain. Remain what? Unmarried. Let her remain single the rest of her life, or else be reconciled to her husband. Those are the two choices. If two Christians divorce, they either stay single the rest of their life, or they come together again and reconcile. Now let me add a footnote here, a very important footnote. Paul is not here dealing with the case of adultery or any other kind of sexual immorality. That's outside of this discussion. In cases of adultery, Jesus makes clear that divorce was allowable, even among Christians. Where one Christian commits an adulterous act, God allows for the breaking of that marriage bond. Matthew 5 32, I say unto you, whoever shall put away his wife, except for the cause of fornication, that's sexual sin, porneia, 
except for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever shall marry her is, that is divorced commits adultery. And so he says, except for fornication, adultery, no divorce. But in the case of adultery, God tells you that divorce is permissible. Not necessary, but permissible. Matthew 19, 9, and I say again, whoever shall put away his wife except for fornication and marry another commits adultery. The only ground that Jesus gave for the dissolution of marriage was sexual immorality. And when that occurs, there is a right to divorce. And so, Paul's words here are clear. And in accord with what Jesus taught, marriage, especially between believers, ought to be a lifelong commitment. And... Only in certain situations, under tragic and extraordinary circumstances, should divorce be considered as an option for believers. That's what Paul says to the married Christians, which is our second group. Third group that Paul addresses in this section is the Christian who's married to an unbeliever who's willing to stay. A Christian married to an unbeliever, and that unbeliever is willing to stay. Let's look at verses 12 to 14. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Paul opens this Section with a, another strange-sounding phrase, I, not the Lord, which again simply indicates that Jesus didn't speak directly to this issue in his earthly ministry. It doesn't mean that Paul's words are any less authoritative, or, nor less that he's saying words that are in opposition to what Jesus said. It's simply an acknowledgement that this is a complex and perhaps difficult situation that Jesus didn't directly address. He says that if a Christian brother is married to an unbelieving wife, or if a Christian sister is married to an unbelieving husband, and that unbelieving spouse is willing to stay and live with him, then there should be no divorce. Now use your imagination. Let's go back to Corinth. We have a woman. She comes to faith. Saved out of paganism and idolatry, comes to believe in the resurrected Lord. And she's married to a man who has not come to faith. He's a pagan. He's still going out. He's worshiping every week at the idolatrous temples. He's taking part in their hedonistic rituals. And the woman comes up to you and says, can't I just divorce this heathen and find me a nice Christian man to marry? Think of my children. Think of the spiritual good that would happen if I could just divorce this man and be free. It almost sounds convincing. But Paul's words are clear. If he'll stay, keep him. Don't divorce. And we know what Paul says, verse 39, that mixed marriages, that is a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, are prohibited when they can be prevented. Don't get unequally yoked going into the marriage. And so can't we say that if a person comes to Christ, he's then in a mixed marriage, which is a problem, and so he should seek to get out of it? Isn't that right, Paul? No. No, says Paul. If the unbelieving spouse will submit to remain married, then so should the believer. 
But, but, but Paul, you said in the last chapter that we are one with Christ and we cannot join our body with a prostitute because we would become defiled by the one with the, who was a sinner. Doesn't that mean that in my mixed marriage that it is necessarily sinful and I will be defiling myself by being faithful within that marriage with an unbeliever? Now, it's very interesting how Paul answers that. Paul answers the question by affirming the opposite. Not only should a believer remain with a consenting unbeliever, the believer is not only not defiled, but actually has a sanctifying effect upon the unbeliever. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, the children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. What is Paul saying there? He's not saying that the unbelieving spouse or the children are automatically converted simply by being in the presence of a home that has one believing parent. You don't become a Christian simply by being married to one. Conversion isn't a proximity thing. What he's talking about is a category of spiritual influence, of spiritual sanctification. It's distinct from personal salvific sanctification, and yet it is a genuine setting apart. John MacArthur calls it matrimonial sanctification. I think that's a helpful category. Paul is saying that merely by having one Christian spouse in the home has the effect of making the whole household a little holier. Sin will have less effect. The the effects of outward rebellion will be in some measure impeded by the presence of one Christian spouse in the home. So let's make some applications from this. It means if you're here tonight and you are an unbeliever, and you are married to a Christian, you ought to thank God that you are married to a Christian. You ought to thank God for your spouse's influence on you and your home. You may not believe, but your home is the beneficiary of divine blessing and mercy in some measure because of the presence of your spouse's faith. You may not believe. Your eternal destination to hell has not changed, but your life in this age is the beneficiary of divine grace overflowing from your spouse. You're not as far down the path of sin as you might have been had it not been for the presence of your believing spouse. And if you are the believing spouse who's married to an unbeliever, then be encouraged that God can and does use the presence of His people for the good of our unbelieving loved ones. And to get uncharacteristically autobiographical for a moment, I would not be a believer today if it were not for the faithful presence of women in my lineage in this exact situation. My grandmother was a believer, married to an alcoholic unbeliever, but she was the faithful Christian presence that led my mother to be saved. My mother is in a strikingly similar situation to her mother. And yet God used the faithfulness of my mother in my own conversion. I have seen 
firsthand how the presence of a believing spouse can be a sanctifying force on the life of even an unbelieving husband. Rather than the believer being defiled by a mixed union, the unbeliever is somehow reined in. And sometimes, God even decides to grant His glorious grace through such a mixed union. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Peter links the godly submission of a wife to her unbelieving husband in marriage as the instrument that God can and sometimes does use to win that unbelieving husband to faith. He specifically states the conduct of the wives, apart from their words, as the means of their husband's conversion. Godly conduct in marriage, even a mixed marriage, has a sanctifying and sometimes even saving effect upon the unbelieving spouse. And so may we as the church, as the people of God, be diligent to encourage those believers who are persevering in a marriage with an unbeliever. Let us support them. Let us pray for them. Let us seek to love the unbelieving spouse to whom God has seen fit to yoke them. Now before we leave this verse, let's look at the end of it. Paul says, Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is... They are holy. So go back in your imagination again. We're back in Corinth. Someone says, if I remain in my marriage with an unbeliever, won't my children be defiled? Right? It's similar to the arguments from earlier. If my spouse is an unbeliever, shouldn't I stop all physical intimacy with him or with her? I wouldn't want to produce half-breed children, half-pagan, half-Christian. We can't do that. Paul is not saying that, not saying that at all. It's also worth noting, I won't go deep into this, Paul says nothing in this section about baptism of babies, not a hint of baptism. Sometimes Paul is interpreted here as saying something that justifies infant baptism, like the lone believing spouse, their presence in the marriage makes the children holy, and thus holy enough to be recipients of the new covenant sign of baptism. It's nothing to do with what Paul's talking about. If that logic were consistent, then the unbelieving spouse ought to also be baptized, because Paul just said that the believing spouse makes the unbelieving spouse holy. Well, that doesn't happen. Baptism has nothing to do with this passage. Paul is saying that the children, just like the unbelieving spouse, are sanctified. They're set apart. They are made holy because of the presence of the one believing parent. And just like the spouse, this sanctification, this being made holy, is not automatically salvific. It doesn't automatically produce saving faith. But there is a real, often immediately evident work of God in the life of the children where we can tell that children are much better off because of the presence of at least one believing parent in their life. That means, in a very real sense, it only takes one parent to have a Christian home. 
One believing parent can and does make a huge, significant impact on the spiritual life and temperature of the home, even when their spouse doesn't believe. Be encouraged in that. Pray that God will use this matrimonial sanctification as a means to bring about saving knowledge to both the unbelieving spouse and the children. That's the third group that Paul is addressing here. Let's move on to the fourth group, verses 15 and 16. Paul addresses believers married to an unbeliever who wants to leave. Believers married to an unbeliever, and that unbeliever wants to leave. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or the sister is not enslaved, is not bound God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul says in these verses that if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, if they separate, if they initiate the divorce, let them go. Don't fight it. Don't quarrel over it. If he wants to leave, let him leave. You are called by God to live in peace, and you can't live at peace if you're fighting the unbelieving spouse who just wants out. Paul gives a special word to the believer who's being abandoned by this unbeliever. He says that the brother and sister, brother or sister in such a case, is not enslaved. They're not in bondage. Well, bondage to what? They're freed from what? Well, the only bondage marriage has reference to is the bond of marriage. So you're free, Paul says. You're free to remarry. You're no longer under bondage. That's what the word bondage here is used. It's the same word used in Romans 7 2 when Paul talks about a married woman being bound by the law to her husband. Marriage is bondage in Paul's vocabulary, and he's saying that you are free from that marriage. I know some people don't take that interpretation. Some think that marriage is a permanent union and that even if someone is abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, they are not free to remarry. I don't think that. And I don't think that because God doesn't say that. He doesn't say that here. In fact, he says the opposite. He says the believing spouse that has been abandoned is free. They're no longer enslaved. If God wanted to say that the abandoned believer is not free to remarry, he would have said it. He did it in verse 11. Remember verse 11? He said the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried. He has no, no qualms with telling somebody you can't ever remarry. But he doesn't do that here. He says if the unbeliever deserts, if he or she abandons, the marriage is over. It is an effect like adultery. It, it undermines the marriage vows. That's what should, should have been a permanent institution is crippled and, and impossible to sustain. And so Paul says, let them go. Why? Because God has called you to peace, he says. But some might argue, how could I let them go? I'm going to hang on to them. I want to see them saved, so I'm not going to let them go. What does Paul say in verse 16? For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Your presence in the home can 
have a sanctifying effect. But if you cling to an unbelieving spouse who just wants to leave, sometimes the effect can be the opposite. God's people are called to live peaceful lives in a home that is unnecessarily full of turmoil, fighting, division, hostility, will not be conducive to anyone's spiritual well-being. God's act of saving is not limited by your presence in the unbelieving spouse's life. Nor is marriage a primary foundation or necessity for evangelism. Let them go. Live in peace. Now before we finish, I think it's wise to address this category of abandonment a little further. Many theologians have concluded from Scripture that adultery and abandonment are the two biblically permissible categories for divorce and remarriage. I think it's generally helpful to have those categories, but we need to see that the application, the discernment of those categories can be difficult. It's also worth saying that this passage, this whole chapter, has been used for great harm. On the one hand, some try to use this chapter to bludgeon, to dominate, to manipulate their spouse into doing things that they don't want to do. And that is sinful, sub-Christian behavior. It is inconsistent with a godly profession of faith. It is wrong. But on the other hand, some have used this text in the other direction, seeking to biblically justify escaping a marriage that they no longer want by alleging that their spouse be guilty of abandoning their marriage vows. These issues can be very complex, which is why God has ordained wise and discerning pastors to be involved along with the rest of the body of Christ. We need wisdom to walk rightly in these situations, wisdom to rightly apply these texts. Looking at this text alone, we may be asked, well, what, what constitutes abandonment? Is it merely the physical relocation, the physical desertion of one spouse to another geographic location? How long of an absence does it take for that to be counted as, as des desertion and abandonment? Does abandonment go into other categories, like an unwillingness to financially support? What about physical endangerment? Does physical violence, what about the threat of physical violence? Does that constitute abandonment? What about emotional abandonment? What about manipulation? Do these things justify divorce? And how do we discern if any of these actions are the actions of a struggling but repentant believer as opposed to the actions of an unrepentant unbeliever? Furthermore, you can imagine all sorts of scenarios where applying the principles of this passage is hard, it's muddled even, because of the cultural circumstances and the outright sin. What if a woman in an Islamic country comes to faith, but her polygamous husband does not yet? What does she do in that situation? These are all complex situations. They require great discernment, great wisdom. And I want to tell you, all of you, if if you have anything in your marriage, anything that is pressing you away from your spouse, anything that causes you to question their commitment to Christ, their commitment to you, their commitment to your wedding vows, anything that makes you fearful of your spouse or their actions, please come talk to someone. 
Please talk to your pastors, talk to your deacons, talk to the women's ministry team, talk to our staff. We want to help you. We want to help you think through these issues. There is no way that I could address every particular aspect of every potential marriage situation from this pulpit. Please come and talk to us and let us walk with you through these difficult situations. Marriage is intended to be a, a, a lifelong journey. But when marriage becomes a crushing burden or an overwhelming disappointment, then you need the body of Christ to come by your side and help you carry the load and to point you to Christ. And that's where we will land this evening, is going back to Christ. God's Word teaches us that everything Paul says in this passage is not only true, but it is good. Christ Himself shows us that singleness is not a curse, nor that it inhibits our spiritual impact for the kingdom, nor that it reveals some sort of defect within us. But Christ also teaches us the depth of devotion that should mark us in marriage. Christ's love for his bride was such that he was willing to die a terrible death. He gave up everything for his bride that she could be forgiven of her sins and made pure. And so we can be encouraged with the gospel. We can be encouraged because divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Christ died for those that divorced unjustly. Just like he died for the unfaithful, the selfish, the self-righteous, the yous and the me's. We all fail to be the spouses that we are called to be, and yet God has sent his own son to die in our place. And he bore the punishment that we deserve. And he pours out his very own spirit so that we can be renewed. That we could grow in our ability to be the faithful husband and the faithful wife that we are called to be. And we also need to be reminded from the gospel that no marriage is outside of God's redemptive power. The most broken relationships can be restored through God's grace. The coldest marriage can be rekindled to genuine heartfelt devotion if God were to but act. And so we need to remain prayerful Remain humble, remain hopeful, and trust God through it all. God is in the business of reconciling former enemies. That includes husbands and wives. And He has the power to do it. And so that through all of it, His name would be praised. And if you haven't heard this good news before, or if you were remaining hardened in your unbelief, then hear the words of Scripture. Know today that this day could be the day of your salvation, the day of true faith, the day of true forgiveness and freedom from guilt and freedom from condemnation. Trust in this Christ, the Son of God, and you too can be saved from eternal punishment from your sins. Come to Christ, the one to whom all marriages point, and you too can have eternal union with the Savior of your soul. And that eternal union is pictured for us very clearly in the Lord's table tonight. We have a small foretaste of the final marriage supper before us today. Christ's blood and His body are before us, pictured in the bread and the cup, and these images are reminders of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus and of what God will do for us to come. 
The great bridegroom has set the banquet table at the cost of his own life, and he invites you and he invites me to join him in a union that is deeper than any matrimonial bliss in this life could provide. This table is for those who are like the disciples in Acts chapter 2, who were devoted to the apostles' teaching, now found in God's Word, devoted to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayers. And if this, if this describes you, then join us at the table. If it doesn't describe you, then first be reconciled to Christ and then join us at the table. I'll pray and then our table servants will come. Holy Father, we thank you for the gift of the great bridegroom who sought out a spouse that was defiled, that was rebellious, that had turned to the world and neglected you in all things. And he died so that she might be made clean. We praise you for the gift of the gospel, for the picture of that gospel found in this table. We pray that you would take these elements and set them apart, use them to make us holy by reflecting again upon the gospel. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.